And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about the illegal wildlife trade in Hong Kong. A 1.9 meter long Siamese crocodile made a bit of a splash when she was spotted in a village in Pat Hung over the weekend. The freshwater croc is believed to have been smuggled into Hong Kong before it either escaped or was let loose. Conservation officials quickly captured the reptile and it's now under the care of Ocean Park. Rare and endangered animals such as this crocodile are included in the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, Wild Fauna and Flora or CITES. And this means the import, export, re-export or possession of the reptile requires a license. So are Hong Kong wildlife protection laws enough? Are they well enforced? Is there a need to strengthen them? After 9.45, we'll look at a new scheme that will allow Hong Kong motorists to drive to Guangdong province starting in July. Let us know what you think. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Now joining our discussion this morning, we have in our Admiralty studio, Sam Inglis, Wild, Wildlife Pro- uh, Program Manager at ADM Capital Foundation, Dr. Fiona Woodhouse, Deputy Director for Welfare at the SPCA, and Dr. Colin McDermott, Clini- Clinical Assistant Professor of Avian and Exotic Medicine at City University's Department of Veterinary and Clinical Science. Good morning to you all and thanks for joining joining us on the program. Um, Dr. McDermott, can you first tell us more about Siamese crocodiles and uh, exactly how endangered are they? Um, so the Siamese crocodile that we found in Hong Kong, I wasn't involved in the capture or, or movement, um, but it is um, a very endangered species. Um, there are only a, some estimates as for just a few thousand left in the wild. Um, they are currently farmed um, in the areas of Thailand in the areas where they're found um, for meat and for hides, um, but it is a bit rare to, to see them outside of that area. Right, so they are extremely endangered, but it's not the first time Siamese crocodiles have been discovered in Hong Kong. I believe uh, the last one was found in around uh, four years ago. Um, Mr. Inglis, uh, why are they showing up here? Uh, I mean, that's an excellent question. Um, my suspicion would be due to the, the sort of the size um, and the age of the animal, the fact that somebody's put the care and attention into keeping it for potentially four years uh, suggests that they wanted it as a pet, but it's very difficult to speculate. Um, I mean, these are animals that are incredibly interesting and unique, um, and there are people who do seek them, um, you know, because, you know, potentially they're rare, because they get large, because they're intrigued by particularly reptiles. I mean, Hong Kong is a an incredibly important um, uh, recipient of live reptiles um, for pets. Um, so it's entirely possible that it's here for pets. So Fiona Woodhouse, um, how do you even get a crocodile into Hong Kong? Mm, uh, not legally, obviously. Um, uh, the import is very strictly controlled by um, AFCD. So uh, for CITES one animals, you can only import for educational purposes, I believe, um, uh, and you would need to have those import permits as well as export permits from the place of origin. So, as we've suggested, this is highly likely to be part of the illegal reptile trade. Um, unfortunately, as um, Colin has said, there is a very big commercial farming population of Siamese crocodiles, and we do see that 
Um, these animals may be advertised on social media. Um, people who have them already show them off. Um, they do it for clicks. Um, there's also uh, networks that sell them. So some of the commercial uh, platforms may be selling crocodiles. Um, they're quite often very small when they hatch, obviously. Um, so they look quite cute. So people think, oh, you know, it's only six inches or seven inches. They don't know that they can grow up to three meters in length, that they can live for many, many years. So I believe that this will have been um, somebody who has decided for whatever reason that they want um, the crocodile and have gone through one of these illegal channels and it's ended up being smuggled in. And the smuggling routes we see are air, sea, land, even post for some of these reptiles. I was curious to think, do you think it came in as a baby or an egg? Mm, I would think probably more likely to be as a baby. Um, because again, if you're sort of engaging on a sales platform, an egg is a very inanimate object. You don't know what you're getting. I mean, we've heard it's about It's easier these. to smuggle an egg. Well, yes, but again, you've got those risks in transport and hatching and all those sort of things, humidity. So I would suspect that once the egg is hatched, and they are hatched in large quantities in these commercial farms, and there's over a million Siamese crocodiles, I understand, being farmed around Asia for meat and hide. So it's these eggs are produced in quite large numbers, and obviously the young will be produced and you can probably retail the baby crocodile to the pet trade for more than you can you know in the in the farming scenario Colin McDermott what are the problems of keeping a croc as a pet um, I don't know if we have all the time for that but um, <laughs> shortly like Fiona had mentioned they are a large animal when they grow um, they can be quite aggressive um, and they can grow quite quickly um, so it's like all reptiles in that growth phase, they need a lot of specialized care. Um, so they'll need proper nutrition, proper access to UVB lighting, uh, which may be sunlight, which may be artificial, um, the proper temperatures and the improper environment to grow. Um, so a lot of people tend to get these animals when they're younger and not just crocodiles, but other reptiles in general, not paying attention to what they need when they get older. Um, and that can get them into a lot of trouble and get the animal to really suffer as they grow. Um, Hong Kong is not a natural environment for, for these pets, uh, I mean, for, for Siamese crocodiles in general. Um, what are some of the health problems you think they will have? So for the crocodiles, um, it can be stunted growth. Um, we can have abnormal development. Um, so where these animals can grow and get improper nutrition if they get too much fat, too much protein too quickly. Um, it can have effects on their bone growth, effects on their long-term you know, liver and kidney health, um, shortening their lifespan. Um, it's probably the big ones. We can also run into some infectious diseases, especially as these animals are smuggled around when they're younger. Um, they become immune compromised if their immune system is in up to speed. Um, they can become infected even with more normal bacteria or normal bacteria that can be in their body that can turn infectious. Um, and then you have an animal that is now illegal, and then you have a sick animal um, that you can't bring anywhere, you can't really take care of, or you try and do treatments at home, and they end up getting sick or worse because of it. Yeah. And so, Inglis, how bad is a wildlife um, smuggling situation in Hong Kong in general? I mean, you know, you only have to go on Instagram, like Fiona was mentioning. You only have to go on Instagram and you see all kinds of exotic pets, not just in Hong Kong. How bad is the situation in Hong Kong? Well, I think the inherent challenge is trying to quantify a black market. Um, but the reality is our best proxies are seizures. Um, and so based on the government's work to combat the illegal trade in wildlife, 
Uh, we have seen that there are, you know, thousands, thousands of seizures that have taken place over the last decade. In 2021 alone, we saw over 400 metric tons of wildlife products being seized within the city. Um, and from our analysis, we've been able to find out that Hong Kong, you know, is is probably equivalent to about a third of what's seized by customs agencies across the rest of mainland China. So Hong Kong is a really, really key player. And one of the important things to note is that over recent years, we've seen this profusion uh, in the diversity of the species that are being seized. Now, that may be reflective of, you know, broader awareness within the enforcement community, which is, is good that they're becoming uh, more aware. Uh, but it could also in indicate an increase in diversity by the smugglers who are engaging in this uh, practice. And so we are just seeing, you know, this huge quantity of animals coming in. Um, and also leaving the city. I think one of the challenges is also that we have an enormous trade in live animals that are coming into the city. And within a huge trade, you're going to see illegal trade um, concealed within it, of course. So to give you a point of reference, um, we're aware that between 2015 and 2022, 5.2 million live reptiles were imported into Hong Kong, ostensibly for the pet trade. So that's a humongous trade within which to conceal illicit shipments as well. So what, what kind of species are, are we talking about? You said reptiles. Mm. Turtles and tortoises are particularly uh, abundant within that trade. So Hong Kong actually holds the um, inglorious <laughs> honour of being the world's largest importer of live reptiles under the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Fauna and Flora. Are they all for, for pets? Probably many of them are. It's really difficult to say because... Uh, according to the data that has been provided to us, um, there isn't actually an in indication of whether it is for pets or whether it's for food. Um, and there's a lot of challenges in the traceability of these animals. So once they arrive in Hong Kong, they may go to a, a pet shop, which is which is great that there is some traceability up until that point in the system. But once they leave that shop, um, there is next to no way of knowing what the fate of that animal is. We don't know whether we have you know these over five million animals distributed across Hong Kong households, whether they've gone into food, whether they've been used in medicines. Um, whether they've died, which is obviously a huge welfare concern, or whether they've been illegally exported out of the city, because the re-export data just does not reflect that these animals are legally leaving the city. Where, where are they coming from, these animals? All over the world, hundreds, over 100 countries, for I th sure. I think it's interesting that some of the research that has been done has been showing that some of the uh, animals under CITES are coming from... Um, uh, countries that don't have any natural populations, mm. don't have any <laughs> registered breeding colonies. Um, so we're not actually looking as a as a territory at our due diligence in terms of origin. So I think we need to be a little bit more responsible on, on looking at where these animals come from and whether it is likely that it is a legal source if we are going to import those animals. So where exactly are you talking about? Are you talking Thailand or where, where exactly are you talking um, about? All over the world. So um, uh, South America, Africa, Asia, um, uh, yeah everywhere even glass eels from the uk yeah yeah absolutely oh um i mean there's well actually the glass eels is a good example because there was one operation that was operating between uh, the uk i think it was gloucestershire and hong kong and over something like five years 
this single operation that was ostensibly run by one guy uh, earned about 53 million pounds with 16 consignments. So we're not talking about an insignificant trade, and obviously that's a species that's critically endangered, and it's incredibly lucrative. So it's, you know, it's worth the risk. And uh, Mr. Inglis, you, you talked about traceability as a, as a big issue, uh, because you said you can only trace it up until it uh, arrives at a pet shop. So how can we uh, improve the situation? How can we make it more traceable? Well, there's a variety of different ways. I think microchipping is definitely one of those that has been proposed as a, as a potential um, approach. Um, fundamentally, we need to have greater accountability for what animals are entering the shops, when they leave, who they're leaving to. Uh, I mean, in the case of dogs, of course, you know, there, there are registries of pet ownership. We do microchip our dogs. Um, and it doesn't seem unreasonable that we would have a similar sort of burden of proof and to ensure the welfare, the long-term care. I mean, these are animals that in some cases live, you know, 70 to 100 years. So a dog lives up to 20 years and rightly so, we do ensure that they are cared for during the duration of their life. We should be doing exactly the same thing for an exotic pet. You know, obviously at the SPCA, you get a lot of, uh, of abandoned dogs and cats. I was surprised that there, uh, there is a, actually a, an organization that deals with abandoned rabbits. I mean, who abandons a rabbit? SPCA, what other kind of animals are coming, uh, are, are being abandoned? And do you feel that the education in general of pet care is just not there? I think that basically any type of animal that you see in the pet trade um, or exists in Hong Kong can end up being abandoned. We um, have chinchillas, guinea pigs, rats, mice, um, uh, birds, uh, the reptiles, lizards, geckos, um, uh, all sorts of species abandoned. And I think that we do need to educate people. But I would say that, that what we see as a reflection, which is a concern, is we don't see as many abandoned exotics as seem to be represented in the market. Now, some of those can live, as we've heard, for, for hundreds of years. So, so reptiles and, and birds in particular, like the parrots. Um, but in one year, for instance, 2014, I think we imported over almost 900,000 reptiles for the pet trade, and that was specifically listed as for the pet trade. And if the population of Hong Kong at the time is around 7 million, that means almost one in seven people should have a, a, a sort of a reptile as a pet if they all survived. So there's a worrying disparity between the numbers that are coming in for the trade, the numbers that may be being traded, and the numbers that show up um, as unwanted or abandoned animals. And we do know that there is a big problem with abandonment of, of for instance, red-eared terrapins into uh, natural water courses or ornamental ponds. Um, and so that's one species we do think should really be strictly regulated in terms of the trade. So they're brought in very cheaply. You can buy them for 20 to $50 um, and they can live for 25 to 30 years. Um, and they, they still have those complex needs. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done. We need to look at things about what types of animals are we prepared to have in Hong Kong from uh, a health and welfare perspective, but also an invasive perspective for conservation of local species. And also sometimes we have native animals that are in Hong Kong, uh, yet we also have the same species being traded in the pet trade. So how do we know that they are not caught from the wild and laundered, um, that they are actually genuinely captive bred for the pet trade? Tell me more about this invasive species problem. What, what happens when you release a 
terrapin in in the reservoir? What what are the problems that come with that? Well, basically, they then obviously, um, uh, unfortunately, they do quite well in the reservoirs. Um, they adapt quite well, but that means that they can compete with natural other natural species or, or can potentially move out from those reservoir areas into um, habitats that support some of our native amphi amphibians and reptiles. They obviously will eat um, amphibians and fish. Um, the terrapins themselves and then may actually sort of impact on the habitats and the ability of our natural reptiles and natural uh, turtles to survive as well. Just to add on that as well, one of the main concerns that I have from the health side is that they can actually bring infectious disease with them. Um, so there are a number of diseases that we know exist in the wild, but they also exist in the pet trade. Um, so when you're moving that animal, you're taking that terrapin or that um, bullfrog and putting it out into the wild, whether it's a true abandonment or a mercy release, um, they can bring along with them fungal infections, bacterial, viral infections. Uh, we know, for example, from the work done at Kadori Farm, um, they're monitoring for snake fungal disease, um, which is a North American, a kind of, we think, started in Asia, moved to North America, came back. Um, but they found one in a Burmese python, which is a locally protected species. Um, so it's a disease that will kill these animals if, if it gets into the local population. Yeah, I haven't been to those pet shops in Mongkok for a long time, but I do recall uh, walking down there once and seeing all kinds of um, weird animals that, you know, the owls, the, 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 there was one thing that looked like a, a, a fox. Are there problems in the law um, in allowing the trading of these kind of pets and what do you think should be done? Um, again, I think that gets back to better regulation. Um, uh, when we amended the 586 um, Endangered Species Protection Ordinance, we changed it a little bit to remove the requirement to have possession permits for, for your average pet owner. So I think that going back and requiring people to have to have possession uh, permits for these types of species to um, make sure they come in into uh, through a legal source because the issue is is if you don't make possession illegal um, then you actually encourage smuggling because once the animal is in the country there is or in the area there is no um, law against you actually having it so we have a situation for instance where I don't believe there's been any illegal imports of hedgehogs mm. um, but hedgehogs are now uh, readily seen around Hong Kong in the pet trade or as pets um, so it's not a regulated species, but um, so those are some areas we need to look at. Right. So, Dr. Woodhouse, so under the law, it's illegal to import and uh, trade an endangered species. But uh, according to what you're saying, uh, people who, who buy them, they're OK. They won't get penalized. So um, you need the import and export is regulated and some sale is regulated. So it depends on the classification. Um, in terms of the CITES permits. Um, and they do require, ideally, um, you're supposed to keep evidence that you purchased your CITES to um, a pet. Um, but not many people are aware of this. And also, you know, it's quite easy to get documentation that may, may or may not be true. Um, fake or otherwise. So again, it's much better to have an individual identification system, as Sam alluded to, either microchipping or uh, ringing, leg ringing for birds, um, and having a proper register of that, and then having permits linked back to those individuals as well. Um, Colin McDermott, when you have these exotic pets, what are the problems for vets? You know, if you go to a vet and say, hey, I've got a sick hedgehog, is, is, that, is that an issue? It depends on the vet. 
Um, I think if you're asking in terms of like the legality of having that animal, um, you know, we, we kind of take the stance that if that animal is, is coming in and it's sick and that an owner is seeking medical care, we don't turn them away. Um, we've certainly seen a, a number of animals here that I probably shouldn't be kept as pets or illegally or in the legal status, um, but we have treated and, and taken care of just for the welfare of that animal, to care for that animal. Um, so it is something, it is a very gray area for a lot of veterinarians because we're left with the charge that we should take care of the animal, make sure that they're healthy, um, but then you kinda can get drugged down into that legal kind of quagmire a little bit. What kind of animals are you talking about? Um, there's certainly a number of um, radiated tortoises, uh, plowshare tortoises that are kept by private owners here. Um, the, those two are probably two of the most endangered turtles on the planet are turtles and tortoises. Um, there's a number of endangered ones here, um, but those are probably the two main ones that, that are in the pet trade that are a bit questionable. But do the owners know that uh, those turtles are endangered? Generally, yes. Yeah, so in the, the majority of the time, um, you have owners that are bringing them in because they, and again, getting around the, the permit issues, um, they come in with permits, but, you know, as a veterinarian, I'm not qualified to really look at those permits and say, yes, they're legal, not they're, they're, they're not legal. Um, and I don't know if it's necessary in my place to, to do that um, for taking care of that animal in the medical sense. Um, or you have these owners that, again, when you're looking at the chain of how those animals pass through owners, you've got you know turtles and tortoises that live for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, there's certainly a number of the golden coin uh, turtles that come in that are just passed down to the children or the, the grandchildren um, as those owners age out. And if they had them um, collected from the wild, most like when they um, got them 50 years ago, um, you know, what is the legal status of that animal now? It certainly can't be returned anywhere or moved anywhere. I think that is important because, it, you know, there are changes in regulations. But um, and so somebody, um, you know, you may have somebody who's got a, an African grey and they've had it for 35 years and, and there was no issue when they got that bird. But now with all the changes, there's extra legislation. So we need to do several things. We need to educate the public. Um, we need to remind people that they need to have their documentation in order and we need to have a system where these people can actually register their pets and that, you know, we should actually have a, a register of, of status quo and then moving forward have a new system where we properly regulate any new animals coming into the pet-owning community in Hong Kong. So, so right now it's only dogs that really need registration, isn't it? Um, mostly, yes. Um, as I say, there are some species that are more tightly regulated, um, CITES 1 species um, and then the CITES 2. But again, for your private pet owners, most of the regulation focuses on the traders. And again, the sort of permit system there can be problematic because, again, um, you know, how, how sure can you be that a permit issued to a trader to trade one African grey actually relates to that individual being traded at the time or is it another bird that's come into the premises and so what advice do you have for somebody who might be listening um they've got an exotic pet at home they can't deal with it anymore what should they do with it it's probably illegal too so what should they do um, well, they can come forward, uh, seek opinion from an exotic vet. They could approach the SPCA. Um, if the animals are owned, we do work with the Endangered Species Protection Unit at AFCD in terms of they do have a rehoming program. 
Um, but uh, for owned animals, um, they're dealt with slightly different to animals with uncertain providence um, in terms of animals that may be just found um, with no permits or no owner. Um, and again, it's difficult when you've got somebody who said, well, I've had this African goat for 35 years. I got it when I was 40. I'm now 75. I can't keep it any longer. But the bird can live for another 40 years. So we don't want the animals to be penalized, but we don't really want the trade to be perpetuated. And I would just say to people, you know, um, think at least five times before you go out and get an exotic pet. And so what does happen to that animal when, when they give it up? Um, well, if it comes to the SPCA, we can rehome them. Um, so, but we would issue our, we would implant a microchip, um, and we would issue um, a sort of our own sort of possession permit or some documentation that proves that animal with that chip was adopted from the SPCA. So we try to practice what we preach. Obviously, um, some animals are too small to microchip. Um, what are uh, we talking about? Um, well, we're talking about most of the smaller birds. So ah. a lot of the smaller parrots um, that may be under CITES, um, we wouldn't ship because of the risks of uh, you know implanting the chip itself. Um, but quite often they'll have uh, leg rings. So in that case, when they've got a leg ring on and they've got a, a, a number on the leg ring, then that will be documented. All right, uh, Dr. Woodhouser, let's take a quick break for the news and continue our discussion afterwards. And uh, if you're tuning in to Backchat and you want to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy, hot with sunny intervals later. The top temperature will be around 29 degrees. Winds moderate east to southeasterlies. And right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 25 degrees. Relative humidity, 86%. It's now 9.30. With a news summary, here's Andrew Shirovsky. A parents' right, uh, patients' rights group rather has in, uh, welcomed the hospital authorities' new medication delivery service, saying it can reduce waiting times in hospital pharmacies. But Alex Lam, chairman of Hong Kong Patients' Voices, said he hopes the authority might consider reducing or waiving the flat delivery charge of $65 for low-income families or elderly patients. The rival military factions fighting for control of Sudan have agreed a seven-day ceasefire starting on Thursday. The deal was announced by South Sudan, which said the two sides had also agreed to name representatives for peace talks. Previous truces have been constantly violated. And shares in several major companies specializing in educational books and online tutoring have nosedived in response to evidence that artificial intelligence bots, such as ChatGPT, are taking away business. The U.S. firm Chegg saw its share price plunge almost 50% yesterday. The British company Pearson lost a sixth of its value. We'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Cervical cancer is common among women in Hong Kong, and regular screening is an effective way of preventing it. Women aged 25 to 64, whoever had sex, should have regular cervical screening. Even if you have reached menopause, have no symptoms, or have no family history of cervical cancer, you still need regular screening. Love yourself. Have you had your screening yet? Visit cervicalscreening.gov.hk for details. What I need is to explore my own path. I hope there is room for me to pursue my dreams. No matter what the challenges are, I will get through them. 
I want to build Hong Kong into an even better home. Hong Kong's future is in the hands of our young people. The Youth Development Blueprint. Inspire our youths. Brighten our future. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Sam Inglis, Wildlife Program Manager at ADM Capital Foundation, Dr. Fiona Woodhouse, Deputy Director for Welfare at the SPCA, and Dr. Colin McDermott, Clinical Assistant Professor of Avian and Exotic Medicine at City University's <coughs> Department of Veterinary and Clinical Science. And uh, before we get back to our discussion, I have an email here from a listener, and uh, it's from David. He says... Um, Hello, there was an alligator found in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York, about a week ago. It was moved to the Bronx Zoo, and uh, that's uh, from David. Um, going back to uh, the uh, Siamese crocodile we found uh, in Hong Kong, where do you think it should be uh, uh, kept in future? Do we Should we keep it, or, or should we uh, um, send it to like another zoo like we did before a few years ago? I can probably feel that one. I think it depends on kind of the available space at some of the facilities that we have here. There's probably two main facilities that can house a crocodile or potentially house a crocodile in Hong Kong um, between Kadori and Ocean Park, Kadori uh, uh, Farm. Um, and I know Pui Pui is at the Wetland Park as well as kind of a joint um, mission there. So it, it depends a bit on the health of the crocodile. Um, if we deem that that animal is not carrying any infectious disease, if it's in good health, if it's available to be moved somewhere, if someone has the position to, to take that animal. Um, those are all management decisions that kind of fall down to the health of the animal and the, the, the care that we can provide within Hong Kong. I mean, as a vet, do you feel that there can be a better outcome for the animal other than being kept in a zoo, in a tank? I think it becomes a really difficult welfare question and an ethics question that, you know, you can spend a lot of time discussing the pros and cons of, but I think it comes down to the the current state of the animal. Like, we don't know where this animal originally came from, which population this animal came from, the, you know, exact geographic range where it's from, what it's been exposed to during its time in Hong Kong. Um, and if we were to release that animal back into the wild, um, has it lost that ability to hunt on its own, feed on its own? Um, you know, so there are a lot of difficult questions that need to be answered about that. Uh, in general, for these animals that have been with that questionable past or have been in captivity for a period of time, um, it is often a somewhat better solution to keep them in captivity and care for them. Um, if we don't know that that animal will survive back in the wild or could introduce other disease back into the wild populations. Right. And there have been some calls uh, from the public for this crocodile to be kept with Pui Pui, but it's not possible, is it? Because uh, they're uh, very different. Correct. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I would completely advise against that. Um, you'd be down to one crocodile, I think, at the end of the day, <laughs> which isn't good for anybody. Yeah. Um, Sam Inglis, you know, you only have to look on Instagram and find and look at exotic pets uh, uh, and they're all sorts of you know animals we're talking lions tigers all kinds of stuff do you do you feel that um things like platforms like instagram and, and the internet in general has um encouraged this trade in exotic animals absolutely yeah i would say that facebook uh, certainly uh, his, in recent years, if it isn't anymore, has been one of the largest marketplaces for finding exotic pets, certainly. I mean, I know from my own research that, that exactly what you say, you know, I found 
um, gun runners in Pakistan who are also selling lions, drug dealers in Vietnam who just happen to dabble in casinos and crocodiles. We've got all of this, this stuff that's just been, you know, the, the, Facebook provides the lubricant um, for this trade and it means that you don't have to rely on brick and mortar anymore. Uh, and as a result, pretty much anybody who can get their hands on an exotic can potentially become a trader. And that's a real concern. I mean, we have in Hong Kong, uh, having spoken to the AFCD, you know, they don't, uh, as far as they understand it, there isn't, you know, this profusion of breeders locally. However, it doesn't take long to, you know, poodle around Facebook. And you do find that there are breeding groups that are dedicated to um, to breeding these animals and when you are breeding large quantities of these animals and it you know it comes with expenses veterinary care potentially you're gonna you're gonna look to make some money so it opens the potential um, for criminality because people then may may or may not be aware of the the legal the regulations and the controls that are in place the need to disclose you know that they're engaging in a commercial enterprise um, it, it just opens the door to a whole host of problems and again this comes down to sort of like the need for microchipping and registering ownership and and just that traceability in the system it just needs to be enhanced because if we don't know uh, what's legally in the trade how can we possibly determine what's illegally in the trade so what are the current penalties that you know of of uh, you know trading in these exotic pets here so under cap 586 which is the local manifestation of the CITES um, regulations uh, the maximum penalty is 10 million Hong Kong dollars and a 10-year prison sentence However, I would caveat that by saying that the heaviest financial penalty to date um, since the amendment in 2018 is a fine of 300,000 Hong Kong dollars, uh, and the highest custodial sentence was something like 36 months in prison. Um, so we are far short of that. And I think part of the problem is that we aren't going after necessarily uh, the most criminal actors who are participating in this trade. So many of those who do face prosecution are individuals. We see mules in particular, so people who are couriering animals from one jurisdiction to another. They are middlemen or, or not even middlemen. They are, you know, the front line in a criminal operation. But the reality is until you start going after the orchestrators, the financiers, uh, the so-called masterminds of these crimes who are facilitating the trade um, through numerous couriers who are paying off people across multiple jurisdictions until we start to take those players off the board. We're going to see this type of crime continue time and again. And so what do you suggest AFCD can do about that? Well, AFCD already do a huge amount, and I think it's worth remembering that they have a department, uh, the department that deals with CITES enforcement only comprises about 56 staff. And just to give you a sense of the scale of the task that they have, so between April 2021 and June 2022, they had to inspect 25,000 consignments, which are import-export transit. They conducted over 1,800 local inspections. They conducted over 500 investigations, made over 400 seizures, uh, and, in, and initiated 30 prosecutions. So that's a hell of a lot of work for 56 people to do. And layer on top of that the fact that you do have these organized and serious criminal groups who are engaging in the trade. And the reality is these guys aren't trained to do financial criminal investigations, quite aside from the fact that their day job is pretty preoccupying already. So fundamentally, AFCD needs to be given support 
by the gov- by the rest of the government. It, it it takes interdepartmental collaboration, and so agencies like Customs and Police need to be providing additional support in terms of investigation because the people who are trained, qualified, and provisioned to actually go after organised criminal groups are Customs and Police. And they are also capable of delving into financial investigations, following the money, freezing assets, um, and taking down extensive criminal networks, working collaboratively across jurisdictions. Uh, You know, these groups aren't just limited to Hong Kong. A constant refrain is that we see that the the so-called masterminds, the financiers or the buyers are based in other jurisdictions. So we need to be looking at how we combat this crime cross-jurisdictionally. We need to operate in the exact same way that these organized criminal groups are. We need to be reaching out across boundaries and borders to actually combat them. Uh, I mean, it takes a network to take down a network, and and that's really what we've got to do. So as far as you know, where are some of these masterminds? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, We know of a few. Uh, I mean, across Southeast Asia, there are some pretty prominent individuals who are engaged in uh, coordinating the illegal trade. Um, But I don't know how much I want to speak about that. But (laughs) uh, we also have, uh, you know, there are groups, for for example, I mean, I think think an emblematic challenge or an emblematic group would be um, Asian arowana trafficking. So Asian arowanas, for those of you who do not know, are also known as dragonfish. They're the world's most valuable aquarium fish. Um, And we have seen that Hong Kong has become an incredibly important importer of these. So in 2021 alone, we imported over 100,000. And this seems to be sort of a displacement from uh, imports in in the rest of mainland China. Um, And what we've seen is whilst those 100,000 plus have come into the city, um, we've not really seen them coming out in exports. However, what we have seen is a number of very high volume seizures. And we've also seen crackdowns in mainland China of these groups which have allegedly had links to Hong Kong. Um, so, th- so as I say, these, these groups are facilitating cross-boundary trade. They are taking animals that ostensibly are coming into Hong Kong um, through the legal trade, and they are somehow finding their way into, into other jurisdictions illegally. Um, and obviously, as the world's most valuable aquarium fish, um, you know, a single fish can sell for at least 50,000 Hong Kong dollars each. Um, so it's an incredibly, again, it's a very lucrative trade, and we need to be, you know, putting together all the pieces of the puzzle across all, the, all of the relevant jurisdictions. Is there a demand for, for these type of animals in the mainland? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're an auspicious creature um, because they... The dragonfish is an auspicious creature? Yeah, because it looks like a dragon, you know. Okay. (laughs) And and there are different colour morphs, so colourations. So I think, as far as I understand it, the red red variants would be particularly sought after just because they have that very, you know, lustrous sheen to the... Uh, to their scales, which makes them look even more like, you know, sort of the dragons of legend. I I literally just Googled it. It looks like an eel with a very big head. Yeah, I think I think you've got to be a bit creative in terms of your uh, <laughs> envisaging okay. as a, it as a dragon. But uh, there are people who do, and there is demand for it, unfortunately. And 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 sadly, you know, if you just ask Google, one of the questions that um, people are asking about dragonfish is: Is it good to eat? Is 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 it being eaten? Historically, yes, in the local populations. I mean, that's one of the reasons why this species was became critically endangered. But realistically, it's worth far more as a pet. So um, the likelihood is that it's probably, I mean, unless you really like throwing away your money, you're probably not going to bother eating it. 
Right. And, and I mean, during this uh, whole discussion, we, we've talked about uh, increasing or improving the traceability of uh, these endangered species. We've talked about uh, microchipping some of these uh, reptiles or and uh, improving education. Um, Dr. Woodhouse, what about uh, um, penalizing people who actually buy these uh, endangered species? Would that help? Um, I think you've got to do all levels of enforcement. Firstly, um, you want to educate people that they know um, what they should or shouldn't do. Then um, you need to regulate the trade. And then again, um, as I've sort of said, it's it's not a good situation where you uh, prevent importation, but then once the animal is inside, there is no sanction against possession. So I think we need to look at those sort of situations and that if somebody is in possession of an animal they shouldn't have then yes in the future they should be sanctioned in some way but we need to tighten up on everything else first mm. um, and also look at the welfare of the animals because <clears throat> what we don't want to do is create a situation where loads of 45 year old African greys are suddenly abandoned because people think they're going to get prosecuted whereas they've had them for 30 years already and they weren't in contravention of any legislation at the time or, or potentially at at present as well so we've got to look at how we put in place proper legislation how we grandfather that in without having without having too much negative consequences but what we don't want is a status quo to continue um, where we have all this problematic trade and I will also say that actually some of the things we're seeing with wildlife is also not involving actual animals there's also a lot of wildlife trade that involves plants um, wood um, we're getting people coming into Hong Kong, cutting down incense trees, harvesting wood as well. So it's not just actually live animals that are suffering through this illegal trade. Yeah, uh, Sam Inglis, you mentioned earlier that, that there were hundreds of tonnes of what you call animal products um, mm -hmm. be, being seized. So what, what kind of products are we talking about? Yeah, so I mean, it, it really ranges. I mean, as I said before, Hong Kong has a really, really diverse uh, market. So uh, we see things as diverse as rhino horn, pangolin scale. We see pangolin carcasses coming in. Uh, we have taxidermied African grey parrots. We have parrot eggs. We have live reptiles, of course, live fish. Uh, there's uh, Totoaba moor, which is incredibly valuable. I mean, per gram, that's as valuable as either cocaine or gold, depending on, uh, you know, sort of market pricing. Um, we have, uh, I mean, it really, it really is anything. Anything you can Crocodile meat. Of. Crocodile meat, absolutely. Yeah, we, we have sure. all of these different yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Right. I just want to go back to uh, the Siamese crocodile that we, we just uh, discovered in Hong Kong. I mean, just now, uh, well, just earlier, uh, Dr. McDermott, he said uh, we, we should uh, find a place for it and uh, keep it in Hong Kong. I mean, what's your view, uh, Mr. Inglis? I'm, I'm certainly not qualified to, to make that speculation, so I would, I would definitely defer to our <laughs> veterinary uh, <laughs> colleagues. All right. Dr. Woodhouse, any view on that? Do you think we should keep the Siamese crocodile in Hong Kong or, or um, send it to, to a zoo somewhere else? Um, I, again, it, you need to look at, as Colin uh, sort of alluded to, um, wh who has space for such an animal. Um, uh, I think historically we have transferred one to Singapore before. So again, you know, uh, Hong Kong government and Ocean Park and Kadori Farm do have those networks. And again, it really depends on the status, the conservation uh, value. So if that animal is actually identified as coming from a certain region where there is a program, a conservation program, a breeding program, maybe it can be put into something like that. But it really depends on scientific analysis. Um, and ultimately, you know, 
we don't want another Siamese crocodile because you every time you have one of these animals term it's problematic in terms of where shall we keep them where shall we put them so basically fundamentally we don't want anybody else to go online and get a baby Siamese crocodile in mm. Hong Kong because four years later there'll be a, another crocodile that needs to find a place to live is, is Hong Kong is the Hong Kong government working with other countries in terms of uh, conserving um, these kind of animals? Um, they are part of a program as far as I'm aware so in terms of the conservation department at AFCD they'll be in contact with different um, groups around the world and obviously um, with through Ocean Park and, and KFPG uh, looking at captive breeding programs but in terms of the details of who they work with um, you'd have to speak to them about that. All right, uh, Dr. Woodhouse, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Fiona Woodhouse, Deputy Director for Welfare at the SPCA. Many thanks also to Sam Inglis, Wildlife Program Manager at ADM Capital Foundation, and also Dr. Colin McDermott, Clinical Assistant Professor of Avian and Exotic Medicine at City University's Department of Veterinary and Clinical Science. It's now 9.48, and uh, uh, in a moment we'll find out more about a new scheme that will allow Hong Kong motorists to drive to Guangdong province starting in July. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Tin, Roundtable Legislator. I want to congratulate RTHK on its uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RTHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual use. So I congratulate them and I believe that they will continue to do the same. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned tuned. with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Hong Kong motorists can start applying to drive their vehicles to Guangdong province at the start of next month, ahead of the scheme's implementation on the 1st of July. Under the scheme, approved private cars will be allowed to travel to and from Guangdong via the Hong Kong-Juhai-Macau Bridge. Applications will be capped at 200 per working day during the first week of implementation, with the quota increased to 300 from the week after. To find out more, we're now joined on the line by Owen Chan, the Chief Executive Officer of the Hong Kong Automobile Association. Good morning, Mr. Chan. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, morning, Jenny. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, So what do you think of the scheme? How popular do you think it will be? Um, first of all, we are very happy to see the government uh, provide more service to our uh, uh, private car drivers. And uh, I think uh, from uh, private car drivers, and uh, everybody is very happy to see uh, we have more areas to go. And uh, in Hong Kong, we estimate about 400,000 Hong Kong private car uh, uh, is qualified to use the scheme. And uh, about go to uh, Great Bay area for business or personal purpose. I think uh, about half of them have interest to join this uh, scheme, yeah. Um, so the application right now is done through a ballot. Is, there a, is that a good way to handle it? Uh, I think at the beginning stage, maybe, yeah, because um, uh, at the beginning stage, I think everybody uh, 
so happy to join this, and uh, I think it's a period uh, to to do the testing of uh, all the application, and also uh, checking the car, and 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 and, and, and after several, after several months, maybe we we'll cool down, and then and also the numbers of 200 to 300, and then maybe more will increase. So. Um, I think after several months, maybe everything will go to go back to normal. Yeah. Um, of course, um, the mainland and Hong Kong, we drive on different sides of the road. Is that an issue? I beg your pardon. The mainland um, drives on the left, and we drive on the right in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a it's a big concern uh, from our viewpoint uh, because the driving behavior, right hand driving and left hand driving, is a big difference. Um, so. Uh, we have a two-hour course about this uh, driving uh, habit, and uh, we provide to uh, to our drivers and our members. Because Hong Kong Airway uh, is already have uh, some preparation about one and a half years ago. Uh, today, we already launched a apps in Chinese called Gawan Tong. Uh, English is talking about drive to Great Bay Area. Uh, the gap, the apps can download in App Store. Uh, including uh, Angel or Apple uh, system, and uh, in the apps, uh, including what? Including uh, a China telephone number, and uh, can speak in Cantonese because some people can uh, not good in Mandarin. Uh, this uh, China telephone number is for rescue service, or roadside service, or touring car service. Uh, the touring car service, including uh, your car, can uh, tow back to Hong Kong. Of course, is uh, we need to go through the uh, beach, and then uh, there's some uh, document uh, you need to prepare, and also maybe close by service center, uh, just like a minor minor problem, just like maybe change tire or some minor repair, uh, we can um, we can do in uh, Great Bay area, and also in the apps we can um, uh, tell you how to apply the license for the scheme. Uh, just like what document you need, ID copy, uh, car checking point, uh, mainland travel permit. And also is another point um, we need to be careful is about the insurance. Because currently the insurance only cover Hong Kong. So uh, we need to have uh, pay more, uh, several hundred to one thousand is ad hoc including the Great Bay area. And uh, this part is already an insurance company is um, uh, doing the preparation over one year regarding this topic. And uh, also some people need uh, more service and um, uh, we, we will provide more service to these uh, people in the apps. Yeah, yeah. so uh, it is what we plan. Yeah. So this app is already available or this is what you are um, planning to develop? Uh, we are already uh, ready. Uh, you can find in the uh, App Store. Uh, but only provide, you know, you only provide a Chinese called Ga Wan Tong. You can try to download and then to see. Of course, it is the first stage. Uh, we will update uh, in, the, in, the, in the coming months because some uh, data and some uh, uh, design we need to update and also um, uh, some, some more information in the apps. Yeah. So you will be updating it before the actual schema is uh, implemented then? Yes, yes, and will, yes. Will it all, I mean, when you upgrade it, will you also provide an English version? 
Uh, up to this moment, not yet, uh, because uh, you know when you when you when you go to China, we are talking about uh, Weixiangzheng, the mainland travel permits for Hong Kong and, and Macau. Permits. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so uh, yeah, up to this moment, uh, we only provide uh, Chinese Chinese version. Sorry about it. <laughs> how, how much demand do you think there is for this? Yeah, scheme? yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. We need to do the step by step, just yeah. like just like. Government provider service also two hundred to three hundred and then more. <laughs> I mean, okay, more. But realistically, do you do you have a, an idea of how much demand there is, and and from which sector, particularly logistics or? Uh, yeah, and uh, I think I think uh, we need to do some survey after after several months, because uh, first of all, I think is for for family first. Because uh, uh, if you only one or two person, maybe I, I just go back to China and take a taxi or take take some uh, some uh, other public transportation, uh, it's okay. But for family, just like hey, I enjoy to to drive, yeah, and and go to go to a Great Bay area because I have experience in Singapore to Malaysia, because I'm living in Singapore over five years. Also, I drive to Malaysia every month, so it's very similar. Because I provide some uh, some data of the Singapore to Johor Bahru. Johor Bahru is the south part of uh, Malaysia, uh, Malaysia, and um, some data for reference. Uh, they have two main uh, cross-border stations. Every day, they are about 145 vehicles to use the cross-border facilities. So it is a huge number. Right. Uh, uh, because. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you talked about. Uh, I mean, apart from having a Hong Kong identity card, you need a home return permit and also driving licenses from uh, both Hong Kong and the mainland to enjoy this uh, to be de- to qualify for this scheme. You also mentioned that the motorists will need to get their their vehicles checked. I mean, how do they do that? I mean, can they only go to a designated uh, vehicle examination uh, premises? Yeah, uh, because uh, in. Today, I, I'm talking about today. We are th- at this stage, uh, 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 Hong Kong government po- uh, authorized one uh, one uh, station to check all the cars go to Great Bay area. So, um, uh, from my from my understanding, they will increase the station number, uh, maybe two or three more, and then to 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 meet the requirements of the of the scheme. So, uh, it's coming up. Yeah. What impact do you think this will have on cross border traffic? Uh, because actually, when the, when the bridge bill and uh, they expecting over uh, is uh, fourteen thousand vehicles per day, so uh, today is only about four four thousand uh, per day vehicle use this bridge. So uh, there's one data recently is uh, is uh, happened in April sixteen is about eight thousand vehicles to use the bridge. So it means. Uh, more room to accept more cars to use the beach. So, um, so I think uh, in the coming ups, maybe we have uh, more cars can use the street. Right, but the, you, and then earlier you just mentioned uh, that there'll be uh, maybe two or three uh, premises where we can uh, get our cars checked. Uh, would that be enough? I mean, you, you talked about uh, right at the beginning about how uh, the scheme will be uh, quite popular. Yeah, yeah, because. Um, because when the when the need is coming up, I think uh, from their viewpoints will increase more centers. Yeah, it's, it's reasonable. Yeah. When they check these cars, what exactly are they checking for? 
Uh, it's meet the standard of the Guangdong area, yeah. Such as what? Such Just what? like pollution or maybe okay. some, yeah, something like that, and, yeah. Uh, and how do their standards differ from ours? You know, suppose I have a car and I'm thinking of applying. What are the differences in standards? Uh, they have, of course, they already mentioned that it's about when the car is is under six years. It's, it's basically is a is a new car, so is that the checking will be maybe more uh, maybe minimalized and uh, over six years maybe is uh, checking more carefully yeah so is is what refer to their refer to their uh, instruction yeah all right uh, mr chan we'll have to leave it here for now thanks again for joining us this morning that's uh, owen chan the ceo of the hong kong automobile association many thanks also to you who commented and emailed us today and to our guest presenter jenny lam and producer Raphael. i'll be back with another edition of fact chat tomorrow with danny gittings